Uh, We will be returning to our series on Matthew's Gospel next week, but I intentionally wanted to take one other passage that I thought would be a tremendous encouragement to our congregation as we are going through so many so many issues with sicknesses and illnesses and stresses and strains of various kinds. Hebrews, the first chapter, we will focus on the first three verses, and yet I want you also to see these verses as a vestibule, an entranceway into the book of Hebrews, and we will be taking into consideration other themes found in the book of Hebrews as well. Hebrews, the first chapter, the first three verses. Let's bow together before the Lord in prayer. Almighty God and our Father in heaven, we are thankful that you have given to us your inerrant word and that we can rely upon your promises. We ask in the name of the Savior that the Holy Spirit would be at work here, not because of our worth, for we have none, but only for his merit, that you, O Lord, may through your Spirit draw your people, grant us saving faith, deepen our walk with you, And that those who may be among your people today who are lost and undone and do not know the Savior at all may be led by the sovereign grace of God to put their trust in him for time and for eternity. Father, do bless that our gaze and focus may be upon Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. In the name of Jesus, the only mediator between God and man, we pray these things. Amen. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ, who redeemed us from our sins, is firmly secured in his exalted heavenly glory at the Father's right hand. And it is my sheer privilege to bring to this congregation the encouragement It comes from these truths found in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, and elsewhere in the book of Hebrews, simply to preach Christ to you, that it may be an encouragement to your soul. It is always our desire to preach Christ alone. We ask four questions of our text. The first question is this, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And we are given an answer to that that is multifaceted. Jesus is God's own Son, verses 1 and 2. Long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. The Greek actually has a son rather than the son. It's a construction indicating quality. It's speaking of the fact that he is of the same essence with the Father. It assumes the Trinitarian nature of God, that there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and in glory. That Jesus is very God of very God. It is teaching to us in no uncertain terms the full deity of Jesus Christ. 
that Jesus is not simply to be admired, that he is not simply to be emulated, that Jesus is God and therefore he is to be worshipped. And this brings amazing comfort for us sinners needing salvation. Who else could save but God? Who else could redeem you from your sins but God? Who else could deliver you from the awful transgressions that you have committed but God? And here we have Jesus Christ, God's own Son, right here in the opening of the book of Hebrews. The prophet spoke the word, but now the word has been made flesh. And Martin Luther rightly says, If the word of the prophets is accepted, how much more ought we to seize the gospel of Christ, since it is the Lord of the prophets speaking to us, not a servant but a son, not an angel but God. And further, it is not our forefathers he is addressing, but he is addressing us. In other words, it's not simply the Bible for God's people then and there. It is God's word spoken to you here and now, saying to you that your Redeemer, your Savior, is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. But as we move along in these verses and ask the question, who is Jesus? We also see that he is the appointed heir. In verse 2, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. He is the possessor of all things. He is the proprietor of all things. Of all things natural, spiritual, animate, and inanimate, all of these things are under his sovereign management. As we read in Colossians 1.16, all things were created through him and for him. He is the one who has regained what Adam has lost, all bent to his scepter, and therefore he possesses all that is needed to save you from your sins and to meet the needs of your life because he is the appointed heir of all things. But as we ask the question, who is Jesus? The text also tells us that he is the creator. For we read in verse 2 that in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. No mere creature could receive the dominion of the universe. Jesus is the creator of all things. Literally, it says he made the ages, which in chapter 11, verse 3, is translated the universe. He is the creator of the universe, all things that are. What can't you trust him with in your life? If he created, can he not also recreate? If he created, can he not also redeem? But also the text tells us that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Look at verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God. The radiance. The participle that's used here is being, not becoming. As A.T. Robertson says, it speaks of absolute and timeless existence. So this is who he is and who he has always been and who he always will be. And the noun radiance is drawn from the verb that means to emit brightness. He is the effulgence of the glory of God. Whatever glory there is in the Godhead is found in Christ. God's glory is the beauty of his perfection. And the beauty of the perfection of all of God's attributes are found in your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Shade your eyes, people of God, because this is the Savior who left his glory, came into this world, and who has resumed that glory, that unveiled glory in heaven above. And as we ask the question, who is Jesus? The text tells us that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. Again, verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Again, a word here, a significant word, character, and that word means precise correspondence. Now, this, I think, makes the incarnation amazingly amazing. (laughs) 
that in Jesus we find the one who shares the very essence of the Godhead, the precise correspondence, the exact imprint of God's nature, and yet this is the one who became flesh, that he might die for our sins. And we are told something else, that Jesus is the cosmic sustainer. Again, here in verse 3, we read, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the one who prevents all from running into confusion. Now, the verb that is used here actually is the word fairing that really means not only to sustain, it means to bear, it means to carry. It's the, the verb that's used when Peter speaks of the holy men of old who were borne along by the Holy Spirit. It's the verb that's used in the book of Acts when we find the, the ship that was, that was driven along rudderless by the wind. You see, what we're being told here is that Jesus Christ is the one who is moving all things to their predestined end. And that doesn't exclude your life. Be encouraged, people of God. Christ doesn't wring his hands when he sees you in the difficult circumstances in which you find yourselves this morning when you are jobless or when you are grieving over a loss or when the need is so great that you only have words, only have words that God himself hears because the need is so deep and so great. Jesus is the cosmic sustainer, yes, of all things, but yes, also of your life and all that is found there. And so be encouraged by this truth. Who is Jesus? He is God's own Son, the appointed heir, the creator, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature, and the cosmic sustainer. That's the answer to the first question, and what an answer it is for the people of God today. Second question, what did Jesus do? What did he do? Again, look at verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What did Jesus do? The text tells us that this Jesus made purification for sins. He cleansed us from our sins. Basically the same word that's used in Hebrews 9.14 that speaks of the cleansing of our consciences through the blood of Jesus Christ. But there's a change of tense here that indicates that this is something that happened once and for all, never to be repeated. Here we see his glory most brightly. Where did the divine nature shine more brightly than on the cross of Calvary as he bore our sins and took the wrath of God in our place? And evidently also there's a a hint, as we read on in Hebrews, a hint of a contrast between Jesus and the work of Aaron that is found here as well. For with Aaron and the old priesthood, the sacrifice was offered over and over and over and over and over Again, but here we have the sacrifice of the Son of God, the Holy Son of God. Think of this. He made purification for our sins, which speaks of the defilement of our hearts, the depravity of our nature. And the Holy Son of God made purification for our sins even before you had lived to sin. And he made purification. That is to say, his atonement was an effectual atonement. You know, I illustrated it this way recently. I want to repeat it intentionally. We have this man that's in prison. He's in jail. And there he is, and someone comes along and says, Hey, I have $5,000 to get you out of jail. 
All you have to do is break your chains. You break your chains and I'll pay and you can go free. What, man, he says? Break my chains? As he clanks his chains and his his manacles, I can't break my chains. I can do nothing to set myself free. What do you mean? Pay the money and then I will be free. Some of us have a view of the atonement that is like that man who says, I have $5,000, now set yourself free. We think that believing in Christ somehow makes the atonement effective, but that is all wrong. Faith is the purchase of his blood. He breaks down the wall. He uses his cross as the battering ram. He comes in and he breaks the chain and he sets us free from our sin through his work of atonement. This is that grand old doctrine of the particular nature of the atonement, that when he died, he didn't simply make salvation possible, he actually accomplished the purpose for which he came. And this is the greatest encouragement of the child of God, that Jesus Christ has actually died for my sins, and my sins, my guilt is removed, and my sins have been paid for because the atonement of Jesus Christ is effectual. And so the efficacy of the sacrifice is traced to the dignity of his person, the person of whom we have read in these first three verses. His infinite nature giving to his finite sufferings infinite value so that there is no sin, there is no disobedience, there is no transgression that is beyond the reach of our Savior's atonement. What a wonder. My full receipt may there be viewed graven with iron pins and blood in Jesus' hands inside. I'm safe, O death, O law and sin, ye cannot bring me guilty in, for Christ was crucified. He made purification for your sins, people of God. Third question. Where is Jesus now? Where is Jesus now? Again, verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Where is Jesus now? The text tells us he is at God's right hand. That the mediator, God who became man and dwelt among us, is now ascended on high. And the text tells us he took his seat above. This is a formal act sitting on the right hand of the majesty on high, resuming his original dignity and glory for the sakes of you who are sitting here today. There, dispensing his compassionate, omnipotent love to you. There, redeeming and saving his people. The right hand is the place of honor because he is deserving of the highest honor who has obeyed the Father and who has shed his blood for his people. It is the place of reward because nothing can rob Jesus of his purchased possession. Nothing. And it is the place of rest because it shows that his mission is accomplished and complete and done. Now the Jewish high priest could not sit in the most holy place when he, on the day of atonement, ministered before the altar. But Jesus, having atoned for our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What does this proclaim? But that atonement is done, that redemption is finished, that the price is paid. It is finished. And that you owe no debt to God any longer. 
that your guilt is fully and completely absolved, that the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ has been imputed to every believer in Jesus Christ. But not only does he sit there in the place of honor, in the place of reward, in the place of rest, but the book of Hebrews teaches us that at the right hand of God, he is sitting at the place of intercession. And this is why I see these first three verses as the the vestibule to the remainder of the book. Because as you read about his sitting at the right hand of the Father, you ask the question, do you not? Well, what is he doing there? What is he accomplishing there for us, his people? What is Jesus doing? So that's the fourth question. What is Jesus doing? The answer to that question is, again, inviting us to consider the book of Hebrews as a whole. Chapter 8, verse 1, he is ministering as our great high priest. Chapter 7, 27, he is ministering on the basis of his finished work. Chapter 7, verse 25, his ministry at the right hand of God is the ministry of intercession. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, old John Owen, the Puritan, said, If there was any one point more than another that Satan wishes to overthrow, it is the priestly office of Christ, since it is the principal consolation of the church. The principal consolation of the church is the priestly office of Christ. He says, The actual intercession of Christ in heaven as the second act of his sacerdotal office is a fundamental article of our faith and a principal foundation of the church's consolation. So it is asserted to be in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, and it is expressed by our apostle as that whereby the death of Christ is made effectual for us in Romans 8, 34, where it comprises the whole care and all the actings of Christ as our high priest with God in behalf of his church. This, therefore, is the immediate spring of all gracious communications unto us, for hereby doth he act his own care, love, and compassion. And from thence do we receive all mercy, all supplies of grace, and consolation needful unto our duties, temptations, and trials. Hereon depends all our encouragement to make our application unto God to come with boldness of faith unto the throne of grace. Now, Owen is right. This is a cardinal doctrine of our faith. That being the case, why do we not hear it preached? That being the case, why do we think upon it so little? That being the case, why are not we daily appropriating what Jesus, our high priest, teaches us that he is doing in his holy word? I'm sure you can see with me that this is an extraordinarily important point. What is Jesus doing? He is interceding for his people. What does that mean? Now, I'm going to repeat something to you that I've said in the past, and it's intentional. Not because it's easy on me, because I want you to get it. I want you to hear it. A few applications. What is your high priest doing in his intercessory work for you? He is appearing in God's presence in our stead. How could you enter into the presence of God were it not through the blood, righteousness, and merit of your great high priest in heaven? He is exhibiting an an accepted offering for our sins. Recall, as we preached on the Day of Atonement recently, the entire tabernacle is smeared with blood. 
And here is Jesus' blood and righteousness, perfectly accepted of the Father, and you are accepted in him once for all. And the perpetual efficacy of that offering is presented before the Father on your behalf. Not only that, those for whom he intercedes cannot perish. Those for whom he died are those for whom he intercedes, and you cannot perish or lose your salvation. Not only that, he is interceding for those who are yet to believe. God has a people whom he has loved from eternity. He sent his son to die for those people. Jesus Christ is now in heaven interceding that those for whom he gave his life, loved of the Father from eternity, will come unto him. That is what he is doing in his intercessory work. His work enables parental pardon. What do I mean by that? I mean by that that when you are justified, you are completely forgiven and pardoned of all of your sins so that in the court of law there is no condemnation. But we as children continue to sin. And the scriptures teach us that if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world so that we may come before him daily and confess our sins and receive from the hand of our Father forgiveness because Jesus' blood and righteousness intercede for us. He is protecting us from Satan's accusations. You know those accusations that come from the evil one. You are totally unworthy. You have no right to the salvation. There is nothing good in you. All of that is true. But we are in union with Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And he is protecting us from those accusations. Don't look at me. Look at him with whom I have union. He is delivering us from temptation. And he brings us homeward when we do fail. How many temptations that come our way because Christ is interceding for us, those temptations are deflected. And when in his providence we, in our own responsibility, do sin, yet he even uses this to draw his children homeward. He is progressively sanctifying his saints, working within your life daily, even through his intercessory work, to grow you in grace and to make you more Christ-like within your heart. He is maintaining our bond of peace and communion with God. He is making our service acceptable. Some of you think, I can't serve God. I have nothing to offer. Serve him. Serve him with what you have. Serve him with your gifts. Because it's not great gifts that he longs for. It is that you offer a heart of love and all of your service is accepted in the perfection of the Son of God and his righteousness that is presented before the Father. And he presents our prayers in perfection to the Father. Every prayer that you pray, every single one of them goes through the intercessory work of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Every one of them is offered in the blood and righteousness and merit of Jesus, your great intercessor, so that there is not one prayer that you pray that is not heard and not one prayer that you pray that is not, that is not answered. In that way, which is most for God's glory and most for your good and the good of his church, every single prayer You don't know what to pray, you groan, he hears that prayer. You pray amiss, he hears that prayer. And he takes that prayer that you offer, 
and he wraps it in his own perfection, and he presents it as a perfect prayer to the Father so that that prayer is perfectly heard and perfectly answered. What is Jesus our high priest doing? He is doing these things, people of God. Now let me bring to bear these things that we have said this morning upon us with a few other implications. First of all, for the unbeliever who may be here in our midst today, you need a priest. You don't need a a priest down at some church and a confessional. You need Jesus, the high priest. There is only one priest, only one mediator between God and man, and you will be accepted by God only through the priestly work of Jesus Christ. God will have either your blood or Christ's blood. You must first trust in Christ crucified to benefit from Christ glorified. You need to be saved from your sins. You need the perfect righteousness of a priest who died in the place of sinners. And you need a Savior who continues to offer the efficacy of his perfect righteousness before the Father for sinners like you. Do you hear? You need a Savior, a Redeemer, a High Priest because of your sins. Christ is the only Savior, the only Redeemer. His blood is the only way to God. There is no other. Trust Him. Put your faith in Him. Set aside your own works. They're valueless. And trust completely Christ, whose work for sinners is infinitely valuable. But now, believer, let me say a couple of things to you. Here, find strength to go on. Now, again, our congregation is enduring many hardships right now. Many people in our, in our congregation are going through circumstances that are deep and hard, and here is where you find your strength to go on. Jesus is the Son the appointed heir, the creator, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's nature, the cosmic sustainer. He purged your sins. He took his seat above. There he intercedes for you. Here is strength to go on. I was reviewing this last evening, as is my habit on Saturday night, and I thought to myself, J.C. Ryle, I had forgotten this. And I went and I pulled my old 19th century copy of J.C. Ryle off the shelf And I said, this is too good. I have to bring it to my people. Listen. Ryle says, If Christ is really the priest of our souls, let us use him regularly and keep back nothing from him. It is a sorrowful fact that many believers enjoy the gospel far less than they ought to do for lack of boldness in using the priestly office of Jesus Christ. They go mourning and weeping along the way to heaven, perplexing themselves by poring over their infirmities and sins and carrying ten times as much weight on their backs as Christ ever meant for them to bear. Ignorance, sad ignorance, is too often the simple account of the condition of these people. They think only of the death of Christ and not of the life of Christ. They think of his finished work on the cross, but forget his priestly intercession. If this be our case, let us turn over a new leaf and change our plan this very day. Let us think of Jesus Christ as a loving friend 
to whom we may go morning, noon, and night and get relief from, from him every day. Cast thy burden on the Lord and he will sustain thee. Let us live the life of faith in the Son of God and hold communion with him continually. Let us use him every morning as a fountain of grace and help and drink freely of that fountain Let us use him every evening as a fountain of absolution and refreshment and draw out of him living water. He that tries this plan will find it for the health of his soul. Majestic sweetness sits enthroned upon the Savior's brow. His head with radiant glories crowned his lips with grace or flow. No mortal can with him compare among the sons of men. Fairer is he than all the fair that fill the heavenly train. Are you fatigued? Are you exhausted? Do you feel like turning aside or turning back or turning away? Get your eyes off yourself and on to the glory of your Savior, your great intercessor. And, people of God, here not only do you find strength to go on, But here also you find your security. When Satan can disannul the everlasting covenant of grace and drag Christ from his throne of intercession, then you can be lost and not before, which means never. Never can you be lost. Salvation depends upon the success of Christ who died for sinners. And here let me remind you that Christ's righteous intercession, and again, this is not original with me, it comes from the the book of Hebrews and the reading of many an old divine. Let me remind you that Christ's intercession first meets your every need and infirmity. You are weak, he is strong. It is characterized by absolute purity. You are sinful, he is absolutely pure. It is compassionate intercession. So that we read in chapter 4, verse 14 and following, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It is compassionate intercession. It is prompt intercession. You say, oh, I wish the Lord would come and do this thing for me. Believe me, his intercession is prompt. It is happening every moment, and his timing in delivering you is perfect. It is earnest intercession. Sometimes you are concerned over a matter. Oh, my friend, Jesus Christ sees without worry the urgency of the matter. It is authoritative intercession, so that when Jesus' blood and righteousness speaks, it speaks with authority. It is prevailing intercession. It will prevail just as his blood has prevailed to save you from your sins. It is constant intercession. You don't have to take a number, and Jesus never forgets you, not for a moment. Your name is written in the palms of his hands. Your name is written on his heart. Sibs the Puritan made this great statement. We may with a heart sprinkled with the blood of Christ now ascend into heaven, answer all objections, and triumph against all enemies. We may go boldly to God 
and demand the promise, the performance of his promises. And he's not being irreverent when he says we may demand the performance of his promises. He is saying what what the writer of Hebrews says, come boldly into the presence of God. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's the glory of Jesus. That's the greatness of the intercessor who sits at the right hand of God for you, believer, for you. Receive deep, deep down this encouragement from the Word of God. And God's people said, Amen.